Addressing the rapidly growing opioid addiction and overdose crisis requires rapid change to addiction treatment. Vital Spark, a Spark Biomedical production, is a thought-provoking, vital resource for addiction professionals, advocates, and patients who want to stay on top of the next wave of opioid addiction recovery options. The show brings together leading industry experts and advocates to explore addiction treatment, research, and resources delivered in actionable, bite-sized interviews. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Vital Spark, a Spark Biomedical Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to explore important trends, people, technologies, and tell the important stories around and behind opioid recovery and treatment. So as we get into today's conversation, I want to make sure that you're all caught up on previous Spark Biomedical content. So make sure that you're heading to our website, sparkbiomedical.com. Again, that's sparkbiomedical.com. There you'll find previous episodes of the show, as well as um, more resources and research uh, around our treatment uh, devices, our therapy methods, and uh, just more updates on the current state of the opioid epidemic as well. Uh, you can also subscribe to Vital Spark on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new episodes. So today's episode is all about the intersection of pain and addiction. And this is in the context of recent updates to the CDC's 2016 guideline for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, something our audience should be relatively familiar with. But, you know, after years of scandal, pain, death, right? It's encouraging to see the CDC at least maintain in its updates its stance that opioids should not be seen as a first line of defense for chronic pain therapy, and even in several cases for acute pain. So that language remains in their guideline update. However, the updates to the CDC's guidelines do put more emphasis on the role of the physician on clinical judgment in deciding when to prescribe opioids with a removal of language on opioid prescription recommended limits. And that's what's drawing a lot of conversation today. Physicians are wondering, what's next? How do we maneuver this new environment? So we wanted to pose the questions on the podcast today. What will be the consequence of physicians being back in control of the minutia of opioid prescriptions per patient's needs? And then does this open the door to bad actors overprescribing again or rekindling the flames of the opioid epidemic, which uh, you know, is still continuing today? And as opioid deaths, again, continue at distressingly high levels, we really want this episode to focus on strategies for the physicians, specifically for pain doctors, on how to weigh their role and responsibility in the opioid crisis. And in the context of the CDC's removal of opioid limits, what are pain doctors' challenges today? How do we fix them? So let's go ahead and get to the meat of the conversation. I'm very pleased to welcome our guest today, Dr. Michael Sprintz. He's founder and CEO of Sprint Center. Dr. Sprintz, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, yeah. Thank you again for taking some time out of your day to walk us through some of the important updates to the CDC's guidelines and uh, better understand what the impacts are going to be. I'm sure your colleagues are already trying to figure out what are next steps here, right? How do we uh, 
begin to maneuver this new environment. Uh, and so we're going to get actionable, we're going to get strategic. But before we do so, I want to highlight your career accolades here for our audience because I think it just really speaks to why your perspectives are so uh, important today. So bear with me while I recite your bio back to you here. But um, for our audience, Dr. Sprints is a national subject matter expert on the intersection of chronic pain and addiction. He's also a triple board certified professional in pain medicine, addiction medicine, and anesthesiology. He currently serves as a member of the FDA's Analgesic and Anesthetic Drug Products Advisory Committee. He was also a member of the Joint Commission Standards Review Panel for Pain Assessment and Management, as well as the Joint Commission's Technical Advisory Panel for Pain Assessment and Management in Behavioral Healthcare. And along with founding the Sprints Center, he also founded Ilum Health and Solarian Inc., which develops innovative software that help healthcare providers identify and help patients who may be struggling with dependency on prescription drugs and other addictive substances. And finally, Dr. Sprints himself is on his own personal 20-year journey of recovery. So, Dr. Sprints, thanks again for joining us. Uh, I, I I hit on some of the uh, the big hitters there, but if you don't mind, you know, if, there, if there's anything I missed that you think is important to highlight, or if you want to connect the dots for our audience with how your background here really informs uh, and supports the perspectives you're going to be offering on today's topic. Absolutely. Um, no, that that was really wonderful. Um, I am uh, one of the big things for myself that I found, and you know, I'd never recommend anyone to have a problem with with substance abuse or addiction but you know I was really fortunate in in getting help and being in recovery and so the fact of being an expert both in being fellowship trained in pain management being boarded in addiction medicine but also having been an IV opiate addict I understand the perspective really from multiple angles and that really gives me a, a unique view of things uh, that has has really been beneficial both for for me and the way that not only that I help my patients, but also when I do presentations or when I do consulting work, I'm able to help um, other organizations and other physicians understand what the problem is and how to address it better. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure that personal experience has, you know, given you an even stronger tool belt of empathy, of understanding the minutia of maneuvering um, you know, the, the more sensitive aspects of helping someone through their recovery journey, uh, which I'm sure is going to be once again, uh, front of mind for pain doctors, especially with these changes to, um, the CDC's guidelines. So before we get to those guidelines, though, I want to just more accurately frame up the context of the current opioid epidemic. So I'm going to throw some numbers at you, uh, but then give you an opportunity to expand on what you're seeing in your practice. Uh, but a February 2020 report from the Commission on Combating Synthetic Opioid Trafficking found that 100,000 Americans died from overdose deaths, and that was from April of 2020 to April of 2021. Uh, the majority of those came from fentanyl and synthetic opioids, uh, and 100,000, that number, is double the number of people who died due to traffic fatalities and gun-related violence in that same 12-month window. So really stark numbers there, very concerning numbers. What is your pulse on the current epidemic, right? Where are things at from how you see them? Uh, and what are some experiences that you've faced, uh, whether quantitative or qualitative, over the last year and a half? Well, it's um, the, the numbers are 
shocking and they're disturbing. And I hate to say it, they're not surprising, unfortunately. Um, something I had, I had said a long time ago, prior, right when COVID, uh, COVID-19 had hit, I said that we were going to end up having it, that it's all of a sudden the the opioid crisis and really a substance abuse crisis was pushed to the back burner for obvious reasons. And um, the problem, though, was it didn't go away. In fact, it got worse. And we are we have been in a national and almost a global cultural trauma with COVID. The number of deaths are astounding. And suddenly when people were isolated, there was there's emotional uh, or I'm sorry, there's social isolation. There was there's financial uncertainty. There's health uncertainty. There was so much uncertainty and fear uh, that uh, all played into people wanting to find relief from these uncomfortable feelings and the issues going on. And so a lot of people relapsed. A lot of people who uh, who didn't have previously developed substance use problems started to. I mean, the amount of benzodiazepine use has increased. Uh, the amount of alcohol use has increased across the board for people with and without substance use disorders. So we're seeing it, um, and now we're we're seeing the consequences of those um, those things play out, and it's unfortunate. So then, would you say that the the main second wind motivator for the crisis was COVID or are there other factors at play here? Uh, well, COVID, I mean, COVID threw gasoline on a fire that was already burning really well. We started to to um, make, some, make some dents into uh, addressing the opioid crisis where the, the original concepts that people, I think, when, when it first really hit public attention in 2017, late 2016, um, I think that initially everyone believed the problem was was just opioids, that opioids are the problem. And if we get rid of opioids, then suddenly it's all going to go away. And and that showed a lack of understanding of the problem that we're dealing with. And I think that now what's happened is people have start are starting to understand both not just in the medical community, but and ideally on the policy level, understanding uh, the the you know the neurobiological nature of addiction and that you can't solve the problem by getting rid of a drug um, and you know when we talk about the overdoses you know one of the things that happened was that as the availability of prescription opioids decreased the addiction didn't change the demand didn't change and so people went elsewhere to try and find it when they could no longer get it where they were and that and once you start buying stuff on the street it's a crapshoot in terms of what you're getting and it i mean sadly it wasn't surprising that there was a um that there was a spike in overdoses that ha has occurred ever since they started decreasing the availability of prescription opioids now that being said there's the same problem also as well we don't want to just have prescription opioids everywhere for for people there there was a legitimate and appropriate reason to try and and limit that and i think that what we're starting to now understand is that pain doctors need to have a basic understanding of addiction medicine of how do i identify someone who has a problem and where can i refer them rather than just discharging them or ignoring the problem and it's uh, the other half of this is that you had an, a lot of patients with the original CDC guidelines, uh, which were meant for primary care doctors, 
not for pain doctors, but it kind of was this, it was swept across the board where everyone was afraid of getting sued or going to jail. Um, and uh, so everyone started to abide by that, including pain doctors. And a lot of people were just cut off and cut off or kicked out and that. And then the people who may not have had a substance use problem, but, and those that did as well. And so that's where you found people buying them on the street, going through withdrawal and all the unintended consequences that sometimes happen when we make, you know, when we have policies that are, um, a, that need to be thought through a little bit more. Interesting. So then it sounds like the initial, um, policy approach was too much of a one size fits all then and, and swung the pendulum too far in the other direction. Is that, is that kind of the assessment you're making? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I think that obviously the intent was good. Um, one of the things that one of my favorite phrases these days, unfortunately, is unintended consequences. And and there there were some serious unintended consequences that hadn't really been thought about well enough when the policies were originally made, which is why we have new policies, right? They, they made the policies in, in 2016 and their intent was good, but all of a sudden everyone was like, holy crap, this is, look at what's happening now. We need to readjust and rethink these policies to something that, you know, again, like you said, the pendulum went too far in the other direction because it was too far on the, on the, the free, not free, but the, the, over-prescribing of medications, um, it was too far. And now it's swung farther back and we're starting to get towards something that's a little more rational. Well, that teased me up perfectly for talking about the changes to the guidelines. So like I mentioned, uh, the 2016 CDC guidelines for opioid prescriptions have evolved. Uh, the language around, you know, avoid using opioids as the first line of defense for pain treatment remains. That's still where the CDC is planting their flag, but they're also kind of leaning back a little bit and reassessing um, the relationship between uh, the physician and their patient, as well as removing some of the prescription limits. So I guess if you had to, you know, peek under the hood a little bit, why do we see these specific guideline adjustments and what are your immediate thoughts on um, on this strategy? Well, I think that they uh, I think that they kept what they kept because the bottom line is we want we understand the problems uh, and the risks of opioids and exposing people to opioids. Um, we know that there's a genetic component to to developing addiction or addictive disease. We also know that there are environmental factors like trauma, early childhood trauma increases the risk for, for substance use disorders as well as chronic pain. So we have a very susceptible population. And so it makes sense that we want to avoid using opioids if at all possible when treating pain in general, you know, any kind, uh, and that we should look towards other um, other medications and therapies and interventions, which may not necessarily be just pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of different interventions for pain, but to try a multimodal approach to decrease that risk of exposing someone who may have the, uh, the predisposition to develop addictive disease. So we don't wanna make the problem worse. And I think that the CDC was great in, that, um, in making that clear uh, about opioids. They, 
what I do like about the changes is that it wasn't uh, the changes made it less dogmatic. And again, guidelines are guidelines. Guidelines are not laws. Guidelines are literally this is what we recommend in general. But you as a clinician and, and clinicians should utilize their own judgment when making decisions. But throughout the country, it really was viewed as the, the risk of it was viewed as if I don't do these, then, then I will be accused of practicing below the standard of care. And that becomes, uh, you know, when you think about, uh, unfortunately, we live in a society that, that is rather litigious. And, you know, when, when we think about managing our patients, it comes down, it, it really is pretty simple. Do the benefits of whatever therapy we're considering outweigh the risks? And that's and that's really when it comes down to if the benefits outweigh the risks, then it makes sense that one would move forward. And that includes, you know, a discussion with the patient and having their own input. When I'm making decisions for patients, I think about two things. One, what's best for the patient? Right. And that includes benefits and risks. So what's best for them? And the second thing is, what would I say on the stand? If I were on the stand and someone, you know, and whether that would be for Congress or whether that would be in, in a courtroom, that someone goes, well, you know, Dr. Sprintz, why did you do this? If I can answer that first question, well, this was what was best, what I felt in my professional opinion was best for the patient and the, and the benefits outweighed the risks. If I have, if I do that part, then I generally don't have to worry about that second part. So why then... Uh... Do you think the CDC even went in the guidelines direction rather than there be some firm policy around opioid prescription limits or the relationship with how physicians can even prescribe opioids to their patients? Um, you know, especially with sort of the, the weight around this crisis, it is a national epidemic. So why guidelines? Why not laws? Right. I mean, is that a dynamic even worth unpacking? Well, no, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. it. It really, the the issue is, is that patients are individual patients and laws tend to work on a population level. And, you know, there are, there are patients and it's interesting when I first opened my practice, you know, back in 2013, you know, I, I was the one who was did an integrated chronic pain and addiction or substance abuse practice. And no one was doing that at the time. I was the only, and so everyone thought I was the crazy guy. But what was interesting is in the beginning, I thought there wasn't really much use for, uh, you know, that no, there's not really a need for opioids in, in a lot of, uh, in most patients. And then the more patients I saw, there, there were, I, I kept running into patients where it was totally appropriate for their, their chronic pain condition that opioids were appropriate for that patient. And they were an appropriate patient. So I always, you know, I always evaluate a patient. Well, one, is their pain condition appropriate for opioids in any way? That's the first question. Because if their pain condition, if opioids are not appropriate for what their pain condition is, we shouldn't be prescribing them. But the second part is, is my patient appropriate for them? And I think that if, if they've made laws, the problem with making laws is it's going to be sweeping. And you can't, it's, a physician doesn't want to spend, you know, um, half spend a hundred thousand dollars in their life in court trying to defend uh, this one patient who was appropriate for opioids because the law said they weren't. 
And so that that would have been a disaster. So I think that I think that it was a very good decision in making guidelines and or recommendations that gave physicians the ability to practice medicine. So then as a uh, physician uh, yourself, as a professional in this field, what are your thoughts on the guideline changes? Do you feel like they're a step in the right direction to fixing that um, you know, pendulum swing overcorrection? Yeah, I do. It was definitely an improvement from where they were in the 2016 guidelines. No question about it. Um, it you know, it's uh, they're not perfect, but rarely are these things perfect because it's a consensus agreement on a number of experts. And I've been on different expert panels that is a consensus in which there are different perspectives and views. And it's important also to for me to acknowledge that being an expert in both chronic pain and addiction, I have a different perspective than most pain docs do. And the unfortunate part that that I want to bring up and honor is that the vast majority of pain doctors were not trained in anything relating to substance abuse and how to identify that in their in their patients. And, and they are now being expected to. So one of the things that I would have liked to have seen was, you know, from a policy level is starting to um, have core competency requirements for pain doctors in understanding the basics of addiction medicine and how and, and the basics of management. Not that they have to become addiction doctors, but these specialties are converging. And a lot of my talks over the last, you know, 10 years, I, you know, pain doctors are not comfortable managing patients with addictive disorders. Addiction doctors are not comfortable managing patients with substance abuse patients who have chronic pain conditions. And so I've been talking to, you know, I do a lot of talks for on the addiction side, helping to educate them about pain and understanding the basics of pain because addiction doctors need to understand that. And then on the pain side is educating pain for pain providers on the basics of identifying and managing patients uh, who have potential substance use disorders. So that's really where I think we should go from a policy standpoint is starting to incrementally mandate some basic core competencies among the physicians and then uh, um, give them the tools they need to do their job well. You know, get, educate them. It's not fair to uh, just expect everyone to know something that they were never trained. And that that's kind of what happened in that middle ground in, in the early parts of the opioid epidemic is suddenly they were responsible and no one had taught them anything. And they're like, well, wait a minute. I thought it was, I, th I, I thought this was okay. I thought this was what we were supposed to do. And then suddenly overnight, it's not. In fact, you're killing people. And, and so uh, a lot of the docs were stuck. And in rural areas where you do have primary care docs that are prescribing because they want to care for their patient, the problem is I think a lot of doctors don't have good boundaries. You know, sometimes saying no is the best way we can potentially save a patient's life. You hit on a bunch of really important things there. Um, physician education, that's huge. Um, we'll follow up on that here in a little bit. Also, the weight that, um, you know, that 
patient-physician relationship can have on the physician, but then also those dynamics of the rural settings specifically, where you have um, you know, a primary care doctor that maybe in another setting, in another environment, wouldn't have this kind of um, you know, a really deep one-on-one -on -one connection with their patients, where even outside of the office, right, they're going to church together. You see them at the local supermarket. Also, you have to tell that person, no, I'm not going to give you opioids for your pain. That's really heavy, right? And so let's dig in a little further there. Um, let's talk pain doctors, uh, but even just physicians in general here. Um, but again, most physicians have at least some kind of touch point with opioid prescriptions and having to walk that fine line between having patients use opioids when it's truly necessary versus finding non-opioid or non-pharmaceutical treatment options. So how are pain doctors, and if you want to uh, expand that out a little more generally, uh, you know, physicians in general, primary care physicians, how are they entangled in the opioid crisis today? Um, and if you had to sort of track a little timeline on the, their role during, you know, the initial growth of the epidemic versus what their role is today and um, you know, the positive or negative consequences of their actions. Well, I mean, I think that in, in you know, in the beginning, you, it was a, it was a mess. It, it was a mess. And, you know, everyone who has seen, seen this stuff about the, the, the pharma companies and detailing docs and, you know, they, we, as, as physicians, we tend to do what we were trained in you know this is what i practiced in this was what my attendings taught me and and so changing that initially takes a little bit of time you know ask anyone who's ever been on a diet right change is uncomfortable and and hard and um i think that especially when there wasn't a lot of quality evidence-based education for providers on what to do and how to handle it um you know that that's a piece of it and i think that you, you touched on a great point where a lot of providers, they have relationships with their patients. They know their family. They go to church, especially in smaller towns. And saying no is hard. And um, I, I always kind of joke that, uh, that a, a large number of, of healthcare providers are, um, you know, have, have codependence tendencies because we're, we, we want to be healers. We want to be liked. We want, we want to help people. We want to fix things. And all of those things set us up to not have good, healthy boundaries with our patients where, Hey, you know, Mrs. Jones, I'd love to take care of you. I'd love to do all these things. However, in this situation, opioids are not appropriate for you. Um, and, and the risks really do outweigh the benefits. However, here are some, here are these other options and opportunities for managing your pain that we can do and holding that boundaries really challenging, um, especially with, with patients who may have a substance use problem. Uh, I want to also acknowledge one other piece that has played into all of this. So, and that, that has to do with the way that healthcare is structured right now with the payers have continued to decrease reimbursement. And as they decrease reimbursement, you know, the amount of patients a doctor has to see per day increases. So as that number of patients per day increases, the amount of time that we can spend with a patient decreases. And we know that the, the less amount of time that we have with a patient, the more likely it is that we will write a prescription and when we're dealing with a patient with chronic pain who may or may not have a substance use disorder, these are complex patients that it takes experience and knowledge and time 
to engage with them to really understand what's going on. So for most providers, you know, if you've got 10.7 minutes to spend with a patient, they're spending, you know, nine of them trying to figure out what's, what the heck's going on. And then they have to put it all together with seeing them, treating them, diagnosing them, writing them the medications or, or therapies um, and doing all of that in that short period of time versus, and I'm a big proponent of leveraging technology uh, as, as a tool to help make the most of the amount of time that providers have with their patients. Um, so it's, it's a setup on a lot of different levels. You know, all these factors have played into it that help to have created the crisis we're in, but I owning those things and identifying them and, and addressing each of those um, issues will make a big difference in solving the crisis long-term. I want to throw some more stats your way. Uh, you know, sure. not to make this just a numbers <laughs> podcast, but um, there was a, a SAMHSA report on key substance use and mental health indicators in the U.S. from 2020 that you know, I think backs up a lot of the points you were saying here, and I think introduces some new layers of context, specifically for pain doctors too, that I want to get your thoughts on. So. Let me just read some of these out to you, and then I'll open up the floor for you to give me your thoughts. Uh, but one of the key stats that stood out to me here was uh, among people aged 12 or older in 2019 who misused prescription pain relievers in the past year. So, you know, again, remember the context here of, of the, the time period pre-pandemic. Uh, the most common, 65%, the most common main reason for their last misuse of a pain reliever was to relieve physical pain, right? So... Physical pain, immediate connection with, and a large possibility of opioid misuse. Uh, another stat here, more than one third of people who misused pain relievers in the past year obtained pain relievers the last time through prescriptions or stole pain relievers from a healthcare provider, typically getting the pain relievers through a prescription from one doctor. So I'm here to tell you that pain is not just physical. All right. Pain is an experience. Pain is it is it can be physical, but it's also emotional. It's psychological. It's energetic. Sometimes it's even spiritual. Pain is you can have a physical injury to a part of the body. But, you know, and you'll know that some people can tolerate physical pain incredibly well and other people can't. You know, they have a hangnail and they and they lose it. Uh, and so what that tells us, you know, the, the, the pain tracks in our brain are also, we have, we have, um, we have, uh, I guess pain tracks or, or sort of like wire circuits that, that measure or detect pain, physical injury, but those, there are also circuits that go into our limbic system, which, which regulate our emotions and memory and salience or, or relevance of what does this pain mean to me? And that's really important to understand that pain is never just physical. It's what we tell ourselves about the pain that impacts how we experience the pain. And, and I think that that plays a really big role in, in, uh, in a substance abuse as well as um, people's recovery from pain or how they handle it. Yeah, and that's, that's a great point too because I think – having that more holistic view of what pain is and how it affects the person experiencing it can give, you know, not only friends and family, but also physicians better indicators for what to look at, right? If all they're looking for is, do you feel physical pain? No, I'm fine there. Okay, 
great, you know, got it, done, we win. But like they aren't really looking for, is this person still rare. psychologically, <laughs> yeah, right, is this person still psychologically Very, traumatized love it, from, love it. that's great, but, right, exactly, yeah, there's just so many layers to unpack, and so I'm glad that you bring that up. Uh, and the other stat that I want to throw out here and get your thoughts on that I think uh, just further validates why it's important to be viewing this crisis as specifically around prescription opioids and not just opiates at large is um, in the same report, 9.7 million people aged 12 or older misused prescription pain relievers in that past year. Now that's compared to only, I mean only, but comparatively, only 745,000 people who used heroin. So 9.7 million people misusing prescription pain relievers, 745,000 people used heroin. Now naturally, both of those numbers should be coming down, right? But um, I, what do you think that really says about where we're at in the crisis right now? That, you know, um, Opioids that are supposed to be for treatment, that are supposed to have, uh, you know, a, an air of thoughtfulness, of efficacy behind them, are actually being misused more than, um, you know, a, a drug that is basically well known as being just an addictive substance. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, let, let's be clear. Heroin is actually used in other countries as a potent opioid pain reliever. It's it's legal as a as a scheduled drug and and for us you know fentanyl is a drug i'm an anesthesiologist as well and we used fentanyl in the operating room all the time when used appropriately these are great medications they're fantastic when used inappropriately is where we get all all of the problems and i i'm questioning that last i'm questioning that last stat um because uh you know when they talk about uh, um when we talk about heroin use versus illicit opioid use on the street, a lot of people are buying their pills on the street and they think they're buying oxycodone, but it's it's a guy who's been pressing, you know, talcum powder and fentanyl and um, and some other stuff that that are doing it. Um, that is a problem. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's even un unfair to compare the two uh, because of the context around um, you know, why people seek them out. Uh, and, and to your point, yeah, you know, just demonizing the concept of heroin entirely. I mean, to your point is it's used medically and it's used medically with efficacy. Um, not, so, not in the U S you know, it's not medically right, used in the U S. Not in the U S. Right. Um, I think that the, the issue is, I think we keep, one of the mistakes we make is that we overly focus on the drug and we're we're overly focusing on a symptom we're not focusing on the cause or you know treating the cause now i agree that managing the availability of opioids is part of the solution i don't want to imply that it's not because it is but it's really about getting education for providers about identifying and, and solving identifying and referring patients who, who may have a problem it's also about making uh, access to um, quality mental health and substance abuse treatment available for uh, for a large number of our population. That's that's the other piece of this, you know, and um, because there will be some patients who may not get better, but there's a lot of patients who don't ever get the opportunity to get better because they were either just discharged from their practice and then they bounce back to the emergency rooms 
or they bounce back to their primary care doc <clears throat> who who doesn't know what to do. They're like, find me another pain doctor. And meanwhile, you got to prescribe all these things for me. And uh, and everyone feel everyone feels stuck. Everyone feels trapped in a situation that they don't feel like they have as much control over as they would like. And my goal is to try and help empower policymakers to make rational policy um, decisions that really help solve the, treat the cause rather than just the symptom. So let's get to some strategies now for physicians and for pain doctors. Um, I guess, how do you see the guidelines having an immediate impact on how uh, professionals in the space should maneuver their work, right? How does this adjustment of the CDC's opioid prescription guidelines change some of the ways that you think uh, physicians, providers, need to be more thoughtful about their opioid prescription habits, uh, but also ways that they need to be more cautious with some of the ways that the guidelines uh, open up and provide more freedom for them to use their own discretion. I think for some doctors, it's going to be scarier because they actually have to really think about it and make good decisions, um, which means they have to educate themselves on this. Uh, I think overall, it's it's great. I think we're, it's absolutely a step in the right direction. I think that this is a good way to move towards it because it gives doctors the, the freedom to prescribe when they feel it's appropriate, where they feel that the benefits of prescribing opioids outweigh the risks. And as long as they document that well, it's, it's generally not an issue. Um, I think that the fear of, of consequences uh, is more than what actually occurs in the real world. And I think that what it does though, is it challenges doctors to grow. And it's hard when everyone, and I want to acknowledge this, everyone's working hard. We are all working hard. We're working more, um, more hours for less pay every, you know, and, and that is in almost pretty much every industry. So everyone is stressed right now. Um, however, that doesn't absolve us of the responsibility of doing the very best we can in, in um, taking care of our patients. We have to listen to our patients. It's the number one thing I hear um, from, <clears throat> from my patients is of that, you know, no doctors listen to me. They don't hear me. And so for, for docs, you know, one of the things I would say is take a moment and be present with your patient because you'll get a lot of information just by pausing and listening. And once they get educated on the basics of identifying substance use problems, they'll start to be able to figure out whether it is, whether there's a problem or not and what to do about it. And I always, I I have uh, a number of partners who, when they first joined my practice, they didn't have, uh, you know, enough training or experience in, in addiction medicine. And one of my first things that I told them was, if something doesn't feel right, it's not right. You may not even be able to pinpoint why something's just not right, but trust that and move from there. Where the previous guidelines <clears throat> had these hard and fast rules. And so suddenly, you know, patients who had saw the doctor for 15 years that were on higher doses of opioids, suddenly they walk in one day and the doc is like, look, you're going down to 50 morphine equivalents tomorrow. And so, well, you know, that's not a really good, that, that's actually a horrible way to manage patients in, in that. And the doctors felt stuck and the patients felt stuck. Everyone got 
stuck. And there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of people who suffered tremendously from that. And I, what we have now is that, you know, they're, they're telling us, you know, in the guidelines, Hey, do clinical drug testing. I was on um, the American Society of Addiction Medicine's expert panel on drug testing for appropriate drug testing in, in clinical medicine. And drug testing, when done appropriately, is absolutely essential to identifying patients who may be struggling with a problem. Because addiction is not this, it's not this thing you either have it or you don't. It's not an on and off switch. It's a progressive disease, you know, where some for a long time people may not have a problem, but then they lose a job, they get divorced. I don't know, COVID pandemic hits and suddenly their stress level increases and they lose their job. And next thing you know, they're drinking two bottles of wine a night, even though they're being prescribed opioids. And we as providers need to be able to start to understand that. So drug testing is really important. Checking the prescription drug database to see if the patient is getting medications you know that are dangerous other opioids or other things that can increase the risk of overdose you know we need to know about those things so there's a couple basic things that we can be doing that help us that help to guide us on um, delivering better care for our patients i love that you know your interpretation here is that the core of this is going to be a positive because it it allows for physicians to trust their gut a little bit more, to apply their skills, and um, you know allow that relationship, you know, albeit with um, some boundaries, but that relationship that they have with their patient to be their driving force for deciding how do I treat this patient, how do I make sure I keep them safe, uh, and that's you know that's a powerful part of the job. That um, it sounds like the initial guidelines kind of sacrificed in favor of let's overcorrect, right? Let's fix this issue right now. And it actually had some unintended consequences, like you said. Uh, now, some of the other dialogue around the change in guidelines also says, well, we need to be careful. This could open the door to overprescription from bad actors too. Would you agree that that's something that we should be worrying about? I mean, what are your thoughts on that part of the dialogue? So my thought is that bad actors are bad actors. Whether, you know, they're, just because the previous guidelines, overprescribers still overprescribed, regardless of the guidelines. So bad actors are going to continue to be bad actors. Um, you know, that's why they're bad actors. And but the vast majority of doctors aren't. The vast majority of doctors are just trying to do the right thing. They're trying to give good care to their patients within these boundaries. And um, so I think that it's always important to um to be concerned about um, the 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 outliers, the bad actors who are going to overprescribe, but that's not something that these you know. If you actually wrote guidelines to prevent, if the whole thing was written about preventing bad actors, well, then you just then you take it all the way to the extreme and you just cut out all opioids for everyone, and that is not a good idea. It's a horrible idea. Um, we can't we can't write policy based on the behavior of a few. We have, you know, we have to take into account that the vast majority of physicians are, are really doing the best they can to deliver good care. And the guidelines should be within that context. And then law enforcement, you know, the bad actors who are overprescribing, they are statistically above the mean. Uh, and so in that regard, there are ways to identify who is, you know, truly overprescribing. And we have ways of tracking that. 
So I think that it should be addressed for the for the inappropriate and illegal, um, you know, prescribing of, of medications. That's a law enforcement issue. It shouldn't be a healthcare policy issue for everyone. Fair point. If someone out there wants to overprescribe because they're just hell bent on being a bad actor, yeah, uh, I don't think some CDC guidelines are going to stop them necessarily. So, yeah, I heard I heard a long time ago from from a cop that you know locks are meant to keep honest people out. You know, if someone really wants to, they're going to do it. If someone is built there and if someone is a completely unethical provider and they're using their license just to, to prescribe, they're going to charge cash. They're not going to, you know, or maybe they'll take insurance. I don't know. But whatever they're going to do, they are going to be building their whole business model, if you will, without ethics and without caring for the patients. And they're going to do it no matter what the guidelines say. Right. Because they're they don't care. They don't care about the patients, but the vast majority of doctors do. So, okay, if the concept of, um, you know, these guidelines are going to enable bad actors is, you know, um, not necessarily the biggest point of concern because, okay, bad actors are going to be bad actors. We should be focusing more on what can we do to make sure our honest, well-intentioned physicians are doing the best job they can. And that kind of leads us to another possibility here of, um, a relaxing of the prescription limits and a more of an emphasis on trust your gut, trust your intuition, use your knowledge base and your skill to determine what's right for this patient could not be as effective if we have physicians that don't have all the tools that they need, are not completely educated on how to gauge whether or not their patient is at risk of addiction, et cetera, et cetera. So, do you see that as the potential, you know, biggest challenge facing physicians today in maneuvering these new guidelines? Yes, no. Why or why not? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think that that you hit you hit the nail on the head. That it really is a problem in that the doctors want to do well, and the problem is is that many of them are not educated on how to do that. Um, you know, I would have loved to have seen. Um, a, a recommendation in the guidelines of a minimum core competency in addiction medicine or a minimum CME, not in proper opioid prescribing, because I, I've seen so many of those courses and they're basically like, and if the patient has a substance use problem, then you shouldn't prescribe for them. Great. Yeah, we know that. That doesn't solve the problem. Um, the problem is, how do I know? So, you know, having, you know, having some mandates for, um, having mandates that are specific about education on identification and proper management of patients with chronic pain and potential substance use disorders. Now that's moving towards, um, that's moving in the right direction where now you actually are creating a situation where it's pushing providers to get the education that they need to, to enable them to deliver good care and make those decisions and to make to make better decisions for their patients. Um, I think that would have been uh, the next step or I think that would have been really, really helpful to have there because that would then empower that would create the opportunity to empower physicians to become educated in the areas that they need education in. Well, then what are your strategies for making that a reality, right? Um, if it's not in the guidelines, uh, 
who needs to take on that burden of pushing forward continued education, better tools, best practices for providers? You know, is this something that providers need to take the initiative on themselves? Is it the industry? I mean, what do we see? It's it's you know, all of the above. Um, it's it's policy from the government. It is the medical board's requirement. It is the medical school's requirement. Start teaching addiction medicine in medical schools, and that is starting now, which is great. Uh, you know, I love that. Um, and what I'm also seeing now are the medical societies are are starting to um, are, are are starting to put out recommendations and guidelines as well. Um, I was a member, I, I represented ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, with um, a 14 specialty group of uh, all the societies from anesthesiologists to all the subspecialties and surgeons in putting together um, principles of appropriate post-operative management of patients with chronic pain. And there's a couple um, statements about, you know, if there's an issue or a question about substance use disorder, you should consult an addiction medicine specialist or a behavioral health specialist, where we're starting that process of getting providers down, you know, into the chute of, hey, look, guys, or, and guy, people, hey, look, people, you need to, um, you need to be educated on these things. And if you're not, that's okay, but you need to ask for help then. And telemedicine is wonderful about that because now with the, with the you know, explosion of telehealth services, which are not going to go away, having a, you know, a subject matter expert, you don't need to have one in your town. You can do consults uh, um, via telehealth that can help you manage it. Um, one last final point, too, that the, the guidelines talk about is they talk about, you know, if a patient's not appropriate, that you should taper them down. One of the things that I have seen is that in the pain community, um, <clears throat> historically, with opioid withdrawal management or, or tapering, if you will, is has not been done in a way um, that's really enabled success for the patients. And that's one of the things that uh, what I do love about the Spark device in and of itself is it, it helps with managing opioid withdrawal symptoms, but it does it utilizing electrical stimulation rather than chemicals, you know, rather than another drug. So it's a new tool and, um, and, and in full disclosure, I do uh, do some consulting work for them as well. But the, the, the product itself is another tool in our toolkit to help providers taper patients safer because we want our patients to succeed. Um, when we just cut their opioid doses down um, without supporting or without treating any of their withdrawal symptoms, what you have is this low level of withdrawal in our patients and low level opioid withdrawal hurts. So here I have a chronic pain patient that I decrease their dose by 10% or 25%. And they're and they're in and now I can't understand why they keep complaining of pain. They keep complaining of pain because they're in low level withdrawal for the next six months and everything hurts and they feel like crap. And so I think that educating providers on on appropriate ways of uh, tapering their patients down off of opioids or just down to a to a lower level of opioids is another educational piece that needs to happen. A lot of those solutions are very structural, right? And they're also very, um, you know, very uh, focused on training a new generation as well as establishing continued education for physicians. 
do you have any strategies or recommendations for current physicians, for pain doctors today? You know, what can they take on themselves? Uh, what can they do to better equip themselves um, to uh, prevent themselves, you know, from further recreating the current crisis through their treatment? The bat, there's a couple suggestions that I would make for pain doctors. The first thing is educate yourself. So there are more and more CMEs that are out there. I would recommend the um, ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Every year we have a pain and addiction um, pre-conference workshop. It's a full day of education on chronic pain and addiction. That's a great thing to attend. Uh, this year um, I'm in Texas and uh, Texas Pain Society for the first year, um, we had a half-day workshop on pain and addiction, and I did most of the of the lectures on that. And so, what's great is the pain societies are now providing these CME and these educational opportunities for pain docs to um, uh, to get educated. So that's the number one thing: is get educated. Do your don't do your CMEs in your in something that you already know how to do. Get your CMEs in substance use, uh, you know, in something related to chronic pain and substance abuse, because you need to know that. It re you really need to know it. And it's, it, you know, where I see things moving in the future, ultimately there will be this convergence. There will be core competencies within the pain, within the pain world that you just have to know these things in order to get licensed because you can't avoid it anymore. Dr. Sprints. Uh, thank you so much for all your insights so far. It's really been a pleasure getting to chat. I've got one more question for you. Uh, you know, being that we're on the Spark Biomedical podcast, uh, I do want to intersect our treatment into the conversation to close and just get your thoughts on if you see it playing any particular role. So more specifically here, what role would you see or would you recommend uh, transcutaneous auricular neural stimulation therapy or TAN therapy like our Sparrow device? playing in a pain doctor's toolkit of treatment any thoughts there yeah i think it plays a, i think it plays a significant role and it will play a much larger role in 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 the future because as the pain community is now starting to embrace and acknowledge and recognize the problem of substance abuse within their patient population and that they will be responsible for managing opioid withdrawal. And, you know, again, the Sparrow device, like I said, is it's a great tool because it uses electricity instead of chemicals in order to help manage patients um, who, are, who are tapering down uh, off of opioids to prevent opioid withdrawal symptoms. And I think that's a huge benefit, especially moving in the future um, uh, as, uh, as, as it, we keep on, as more and more providers start to feel more comfortable with tapering their patients instead of discharging them, that uh, the, the Spark device will play a much larger role in the future with, um, uh, within the pain management community. Um, it's playing a very big role in both the addiction medicine community as, as an alternative to uh, other medications like, medic, me, like methadone or buprenorphine. It uses electricity instead, and that's really starting to take off, and, and it's a great um, alternative solution to manage opioid withdrawal symptoms. And it's also doing a great job in neonatal withdrawal symptoms as well. I mean, the, the data is really impressive. So I see it happening already in the addiction side and on the pain side, it's going to have a, a big impact moving forward um, as, as the pain community really starts to embrace um, 
learning and understanding about substance use and how to manage it um, because it's coming. It, we're actually, it's here already, but it's the, the time of, of needing to learn about it and how to manage it is, is also here and it's starting and it's going to get more and more. So you guys can be, uh, or everyone can get ahead of the curve. Uh, and I would strongly recommend that. And I think with that forward-looking note, we'll wrap up the podcast here for today. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, I think um, pushing for education, pushing uh, for there to be some structural adjustments to how we center this in the industry, uh, but also doing what we can as individual physicians uh, and also supporting colleagues in coming together and making sure that, hey, at our practice, we're going to make sure we're all on the same page here and we all um, you know, are fully equipped to identify and properly treat patients who might have a predisposition uh, or you know, maybe leaning towards developing um, an addiction. I did have one last final thought. Um, the one thing that I do want to say, and, and I've told this to, to my partners when they first started in the practice, the, everyone, no one likes having... Ever, you know, initially pain doctors are, are not comfortable with having addiction patients. What I can tell you is this, when you get comfortable with the basics of, uh, of identifying and managing substance abuse, and when you get comfortable with holding boundaries, what you will find in your practice is your practice gets easier. You, you tend to select for patients who want to get better. The emotional stress within your practice will go down. I promise you, um, it is absolutely worth doing. So um, that, that really is the last thing I wanted. I wanted to give the pain doctors hope. It's not all, you must do this, you must do this. What I also want them to know is when you do this, your practice will, will improve. Your outcomes will be better. Um, and you will actually not have nearly as much stress from, um, from patients in their active addiction because you'll know how to manage them and it won't be that problem. Dr. Michael Sprintz, founder and CEO of Sprint Center. Thank you so much again for your time today. It's been such a pleasure um, getting your thoughts on this, pulling from your experience, not only in your personal journey of recovery, but also as a uh, certified uh, professional in this space and with so many accolades. It's just been so great getting your perspective on um, the nuances of this challenge and why it's important to hold those nuances dear because one-size-fits-all solutions, as we've seen with the initial 2016 CDC guidelines, do not always have the intended consequences. So we'll leave on that note. Dr. Sprints, thanks again. And if folks want to get in touch with you, um, they want to pick your brain on the subject a little more, how can they learn more about your work and how can they get in touch? Sure. The, the best way to reach me would uh, be my email, which uh, actually I have two different ones. One is um, msprints, S-P-R-I-N-T-Z, at Sprint Center dot com or you can email me at michael at drsprints.com um, either way is fine uh, i am happy to help out any way that i can if people have questions uh, or if i can be of assistance in any way fantastic stuff i think you're going to be a really valuable resource for the community moving forward and i appreciate you being so willing to share your knowledge and expertise so thanks again dr sprints and uh, we'll chat Great. again soon thanks for having me and thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of Vital Spark, a Spark biomedical podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want previous episodes, you want to make sure you don't miss out on future conversations, 
or you just want more information on Spark Biomedical as a whole, you can head to our website, sparkbiomedical.com. Again, that's sparkbiomedical.com. And make sure that you're subscribing to Vital Spark on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Vital Spark.